to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities. Our aim is to create a better awareness to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Reverend Larry Beardy. The Right Reverend Dr. Isaiah Larry Beardy is from the Tatasquia Cree Nation, also known as Split Lake in northern Manitoba. He is a Reverend of the Anglican Church of Split Lake and also the Indigenous Suffragan Bishop of two Indigenous spiritual ministries. Reverend Beardy is a survivor of the Indian residential school system, which he attended from the age of 8 until 16. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Brandon and received an honorary doctorate of divinity at the College of Emmanuel in St. Chad. He is also a former chief and teacher of his community of Tatasquiak, and in this podcast, Gordon and Reverend Beardy sit down to discuss the importance of language revitalization and the path which led Reverend Beardy to where he is today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Home Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Reverend Larry Beardy from the Tathasquiak Cree Nation in Northern Manitoba. Hello, Reverend Beardy, and welcome. How are you today? Yeah, good morning, uh, Gordon. Uh, today, I feel awesome. I feel really good. I'm here in, uh, in Thompson, Manitoba right now uh, doing some work. It's beginning to be a, a beautiful day today. Maybe we can just start by you telling us a bit about your background. Uh, I know you're from Tataskia Cree Nation, same place as I'm from. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the community and uh, what what the community is doing. You're a Cree First Nation. Let's uh, hear a little bit about your background, maybe a bit about your family as well. Well, uh, like you said, I'm a member of Tataskia Cree Nation. It's, uh, we're located north, uh, north of 60, north of 56, I should say, along the, the Nelson River. And we're about 200 miles from uh, Churchill and York Factory. So uh, just to get the bearings of where, we're, where, where I'm from, and we live along the edge uh, of the Barrens. Uh, that's, where, that's where I'm from. As a child, I grew up with my parents, my parents are from Tatasquia, and my dad, uh, he worked with uh, the Canadian National Railway, and like many of his friends and family, they moved to, to, work, to work for the rail in the uh, early 1900s, uh, and they went to work there, and that's where, that's where I grew up, but, but basically we lived on the land. If you understand the railway system in the north, we were living in many areas uh, along the Barrens and also the Boreal Forest. 
And my dad, uh, practicing our culture, we lived a very traditional lifestyle, living off the land and harvesting uh, the animals and the birds uh, from the land. That's what we, we ate. But the thing about it, uh, one thing that I really, very fond to me is uh, I grew up in an oral tradition. My parents, they spoke to me in the language, the mother tongue that was uh, given to us. And that's how I grew up. I, I've never, I never seen any form of, uh, of any written or uh, communications at this very oral tradition. And I learned by listening, listening to the stories uh, that were told by my parents and the legends that they shared with us. Uh, you probably know a lot of the legends we hear about Wishagata, Wishtigo, uh, you know, all those kind of legends. Uh, Jahabis. That's where I, I learned my education as a child, you know, until I was eight years old. And when I was eight years old, I I, uh, I was taken to residential school. But those are my fondest memories as a child, you know, uh, growing up with my parents. Very traditional, very traditional. And uh, my father and my mother we practice uh, the traditional way of life, our culture, uh, our language, and even uh, with the medicines that were available to us, uh, you know, in the environment that we lived in. So that's where I come from. And that's, that's who I am. And, and, I'll never, and I'll never forget that, that wonderful experience, especially with my parents and my grand granny. I only seen my granny, my granny uh, Lucy. I, that's the only I never seen my grandpa. I never seen, but my granny he lived with us. I grew up with my uncles, uh, you know, on my father's side. I knew my uncle and my auntie on my mother's side, and I had a wonderful experience with my granny. Like you live on the land, you fish. I used to see my granny. I helped her. We used to drag uh, Murai from the ice to the over the snow, and I would see her skin the Murai, and we would oh that 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 Murai. So uh, another name I guess is Burbot, eh? and and we would love eating it. Oh, I love the taste of Murai and sturgeon, and caribou, moose meat, and all kinds of waterfowl. We we ate, and I used to wear rabbit skin. You know, on my feet, I remember my mother, she would uh, skin the rabbit and dry the rabbit uh, fur, and uh, and she would wrap the rabbit fur around my feet and, and put on my moccasins, my mucklock, whatever, and she would throw me outside. Minus <laughs> 30, minus 40, and we would play outside. All day we would play outside. Right. And... I don't remember watching a TV or anything like that when I was growing up. I learned everything. What my parents taught me, what my brothers taught me. I, in my family, uh, there's 10 of us. We have four women and, and six men. Eh? Oh. We, we all went to residential school. That's who I grew up with. And that's yeah. where I come from, Gordon. Yeah. You're a survivor of the residential school system. Can you tell us a bit about your, your experiences at the Mackay Indian Residential School in Dauphin, Manitoba? 
Yeah, I went to I went to the same school you went to school with. I think I remember you. I think you are a little younger than I am. I'm yeah. six to seven years old. You know, and in 2021, I'll be turning 68. Let's just say I'm younger. Yeah, you're younger, and uh, you're probably smarter <laughs> than I. Am. I don't but know. Anyway, what that. <laughs> I remember uh, going to residential school. Well, we left. Uh, like I said, my father worked for the railroad. Uh, I left on a train in Churchill, Manitoba. That's where the polar bears are, you know. You guys. That's where I I was boarded on a train from Churchill when I was eight years old. I thought I was going for a holiday. Eh? I thought I was going for a ride. And there were other children there. And then every stop along the rail, you know, the life on a railroad, like there's stops every 20 miles if you work in an English, English measurement system. Eh? Every 20 miles, there's about four or five families. And every stop, there were other children getting on the train. And every time these children got on the train, all of a sudden I heard crying and, and all that. And that was a horrible experience for me. Yeah. I was an eight-year-old, you know, eight-year-old. I just see my mom disappear in a distance. When I was getting, when I was riding on a train, and that was an experience, you know, uh, a a ride on a train. Uh, you would go one whole night, and then all day, and then the next day we arrived in total darkness into the. Well, I didn't know where hell, where I was, but I later it was Dauphin. Eh? Dauphin, I knew it was Dauphin, Manitoba. I arrived. I think we arrived there that night. I think we arrived there. We were like cattle, eh? We were separated. I didn't see my siblings. I just seen people that were same size, same age group. But I, I knew some family members from different families, you know, uh, at that time. And uh, we were we were marched like cattle eh? into our own areas, our own dorm, our dormitory. But one of the things I want to share and we see it today. And this is the story I shared, okay? I don't know if you were there, Gordon. I'm not too sure if you were there, but this is an incident uh, that happened while I was in Dauphin. And, and this is what's happening today. And it is a story about statues, okay? And authority. I don't know if you if you heard about this, the, what happened in Manitoba at the Manitoba Legislative Grounds when the statue of Queen Victoria was toppled. What? Yeah, a lot of people are very upset about that. And even our own people had mixed emotions. Why do you topple a statue? Why? You know, especially the Queen. The queen, uh, you know, the, of the Commonwealth. Why? Why do you tell them that? And a lot of people made, uh, you know, made some comments and uh, an analysis of what was going on. But this is a story that I share, and I hope it helps. When we were living, I think in uh, in Mackay, in in the residential school, you have dorms uh, with uh, boys. And, and the girls were separated. We lived in different places in the residential school. And there are three dorms that I lived in. One is the, the junior dorm, 
and then the intermediate dorm, and then the senior dorm, and then the high school dorm had their own place. But me, I never reached high school. They kicked me out when I was 16 years old, you know, according to the Indian Act. I, I guess they thought I would never further my, my education. But anyway, it was the intermediate dorm, this experience that I want to share, very personal. I remember our supervisor of the day, you know, I don't know if he, if he meant well or he wanted to, you know, just to give us something to do. But the supervisor that they brought these boxes of model Air Force fighter planes, their model planes, war planes. And they gave us, you know, he bought a bunch, so we paired off, and I think some did on their own. And we had to, we had to put them together, these model planes. We glued them, and I, and they become model planes. They were toys for us, and we beautified our dorm. Eh? We hung them up on a ceiling, and then we some put them on a windowsill. And our dorm was full of Air Force fighter planes. <laughs> I remember that. I don't. I don't. I don't remember. I don't know if you were there, Lord, but uh, this is intermediate, eh? The supervisor. Yeah, I remember you uh, being in the. I was a. I was in the junior dorm, and you were in the uh, intermediate dorm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Along with yeah. some of my cousins, I guess I didn't even know at the time that we had, like, uh, we were from the same place. And yeah. We didn't even know that we were, a lot of us didn't even know that we had second cousins there at the same yeah, time. Yeah, we were related, eh? Most of our people in Tataskia are related. Iwaku, right. you know, we're related. But anyway, this incident of model planes, fighter planes like that, they represent authority. We know that, eh? They represent power. And as a child, you don't, you don't even think about it. All you want to do is play with something. I think about this now, well, what happened to the, the toppling of the statues. Because what happened, after we did all this beautifying our dorm with this model plane, the principal of the day came into the dorm. And at that time, somebody had ran away, ran away from the residential school and was caught. So the principal, they brought this uh, colleague of mine, a friend, a relative of mine, in front of us, about 30 children. We were just children, Gordon. We, we were just children, you know? Yeah. You know? We got no, you know. <laughs> but the principal, they brought this child, you know, a boy that lived with us. And to show his authority and his power, he beat up that kid in front of all of us. Strap, strap, and and a young, you know, the child like this, right? And to enforce the power, this uh, supervisor, this principal, he told us, "I want everybody to go to your own beds. I want everybody to lean down, kneel, kneel on your bed, to kneel there. And I want everybody to pull your pull your pants down." And the principal went around the dorm and he beat all us. All of us were beat with a strap on our on our butts. Oh, there was a lot of crying. 
I think people just crying and in pain. Eh? This is an incident that happened I will never forget. And today, I see that when I hear about statues being toppled over. When you push people to the edge, there's natural instinct. When that was done and everybody was suffering and in pain, we just exploded in that dorm. We were just children, we exploded. We demolished that whole dorm. We all the planes that we put together, we just knocked everything down and we just broke them. That's what happened. And this is a story I share, not only to this audience, but I shared it with bishops around the world. Yeah. And this is what they want to, they want to, they want the world. I even shared it with the New York Times. Yeah. But I haven't seen the story yet from the New York Times. It's one of many, many stories like that that happened across this country in residential schools. Yeah. One of many, you know. I had a similar incident, but yeah, I won't, I won't get into that right now. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I thought you want me to share about my residential school, but this is what happened to me, eh, personally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, there are other stories that are, you know, resilient stories. I won't be here if uh, we weren't resilient, but you won't yeah. be there. Yeah, but we had we had good laughs too. Sure, to, to help us get get by. Eh? <laughs> yeah, that's what makes us survive. Yeah, our 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 humor. Yeah, I mean we could talk all day long about residential schools and you know the impacts yeah. they've had and uh, and the children that have died in in many of these schools and the uncovering yeah. of burial sites across country across our country today. And, uh, mm -hmm. But I wanted to touch on more stuff about you and uh, and the work that you're doing. And I wanted to ask you about the year an Anglican minister. Uh, tell us about a little bit about how you got into the ministry and what kind of work are you doing right now? Well, my parents, like I said, they were very traditional people. But they also, you know, practice uh, going to church. Like our community has a strong faith in the Anglican church. And that's what our community is. We have, a, we have an Anglican church in our community and very strong, strong in the faith, not only as a Christian, but also a traditional spirituality, very strong. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's where I come from, uh, my parents, my community, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, it's the only denomination in our community. In my community, that, that's, that's where I come from. Eh? Uh, I want to share with you a story uh, of how I began my ministry. Like many young families, uh, you know, I'm just minding my own business. You know, I'm sitting at home. I'm, I'm trying to raise a family. Elizabeth and I, we just got married in 1974. I mean, I've been married now 47 years with uh, my wife, Elizabeth, who also is from and also uh, went to residential school. Same school we, we went. And she's also a day school survivor, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, that's, uh, a sound. that's my granddaughter trying to feed her dog. So. Okay. So, that's okay. Just keep going. Uh, yeah. But anyway. Uh, How are you going into the ministry? 
Yeah. I was watching a hockey game. Elizabeth and I, uh, 1974, we got married. It must have been uh, 1975. We had our first child. And, and I'm just watching hockey on a Saturday evening. Eh? There was a knock on my door. You know, I got up, I went to the door, I, I checked it. And there was the minister standing there. And he had a frozen chicken. Frozen chicken. And he said, here, I want to give this to you and Elizabeth. Have it, uh, you know, once it's thought out, have it. And, but also he had a piece of paper. And he says, uh, here is a piece of paper. And, and I looked at it. It's got, a, it's got a scripture reading from the Bible, eh? I would like you to see if you can read this in a church, in a church, you know, this Sunday. And uh, I said, okay. <laughs> so, and if you want to practice, go to our church. It's open. It's not locked. Go to the church and practice reading. Just pretend there's people in the church there and read it. Read it. I said, okay. And, uh, and the minister left. So let's, uh, I got to read this. I'm thinking about this, you know, and uh, sure enough, I, I go to the church, uh, you know, on the advice of the priest. And I went to the church and I, and I went to the front where they read, read, uh, read. So I was reading it. All of a sudden I was, I was reading, as I was reading this out loud, like if there are people there, all of a sudden on my left side, uh, you know, you've seen our church, Gordon. There was uh, stained glass windows there. Yeah. There were a whole line of them. They started shaking. One side of the church, it started shaking. And, side, and behind me, the church started shaking. And on the right side, it started shaking. And here, I'm just, I'm just shaking, you know, trembling. You know, I, I thought I was having a revelation. God is revealing. And I'm just all scared. So I read and I read and I, I'm not stopping. I'm reading this thing. So I finish. I walk to the back of the church. I'll say this in Cree because it sounds funnier. Atimpanida Mahibom. You remember that? Those, those three wheelers, those ATV bikes. Somebody was driving away from the church. And I was the person that came around the church and shook all the windows. So anyway, this is a story I share. Oh, how I. I became a lay reader, eh? I, yeah. I was reading, and and the priest, brand new to a community, wanted to attract young people, young people. And there were others that he did the same thing. And that's how I began. I started reading. I started reading uh, a lay reader, and I was a lay reader off and on. We, we struggled, residential school, you know, and... Uh, and we even struggled with a local clergy that uh, the diocese of Kiwetan had, uh, who sent, they sent clergy. And we had even a cleric in our diocese had abused a lot of, lot of uh, boys. So we struggled with that. So I didn't know if I wanted to continue working in a church. So those kind of things, resonated school, uh, abuse, you know, physical, sexual, whatever abuse. We headed head on, and it was a conflict. And people like me, you know, why am I working in a church like that? That that abuse people, even the discovery of infants now, you know, 
A lot of people ask me that. Why are you still in a church? Why are you believing this, you know? And I just tell them I, I was brought up. That's my, that's how I was brought up. You know, in uh, my, my, my own people never abuse me. It's usually people from the outside. And I struggle with that in the church. I struggle with it. I struggle with it, but I'm still here. I'm still a bishop. In 1999, the bishop of the day phoned me and said, Larry, I want you to come for lunch with me. Come and have lunch with me. So I, I went to have lunch with the bishop of the day, 1999. And he said, Larry, I need your help. I need you to help me. And he said, I want to ordain you. I want, to, I want you to help in ordain ministry. So in December 5th, 1999, I was ordained as a deacon. And I was ordained in my own community in Tatasquia. Uh, and then in 2000 in May, I was priested by the bishop that asked me. I was priested in May in 2000. So I've been I've been involved with the, with the church since I was 20 years old. Off and on, you know, I, we struggled. We met a lot of lot of things that really head on, and and I try to help people understand what's going on. And on uh, September the 23rd, 2018, I was asked to to run as a bishop in the election. And I was asked by elders uh, of a different community, not my community. Uh, these elders, a uh, couple from, and uh, they they asked me, we want you to, to run as a bishop. So in, December, in September 23rd, 2018, now that's uh, going on uh, four years. This is before COVID. I was elected as a bishop in uh, Indigenous Spiritual Ministry of Masamkush, and I've become a bishop of the Anglican Church. So this is my ministry, 20, uh, 47 years, and, and I help out. So, and I'm involved in ministry right across Canada. I'm in uh, Northern Manitoba Area Mission. I, I minister as a Episcopal ministry, we call it, uh, with 14 communities. Three, uh, three language groups, uh, the Dene, the Ojibwe, and the Cree. So that's where I minister. I'm also an assistant bishop to the Diocese of Brandon under another bishop. I help out uh, when they ask me to go to uh, places like the Pa, uh, you know, uh, places like Moose Lake, Easterville. Uh, you know, I assist there. And also, I'm an assistant bishop to the Mississippi, Northern Saskatchewan. I work with Bishop Adam Hockett, who is in a diocese of Saskatchewan. And also, uh, I'm under the license of, uh, of uh, Miss Amakwish under Bishop Lydia from Kingfisher Lake, Ontario. And that's over 60, over 60 communities. So I try to spread out as much as possible wherever I'm needed. And I work in a national church. I'm involved, very involved in uh, in what in the Anglican Church. We're looking at self-determination, what we call sacred circle focus group. Uh, I'm on a jubilee commission with a national church. We're looking at funding the indigenous ministry. So 
as my involvement in the uh, in the Anglican Church, I I have plans to go to Lambeth, England. I'm in conversation with the church with the bishops in of the world. I tell the story of uh, residential school, and now they want me to talk more about it in Lambeth in August 2022. So I, I'm praying about that. At the same time, uh, Elizabeth and I are dealing with health issues, mostly mobility. So uh, we, we try our best. We try our best to, to help out. And I know uh, our people need help spiritually, spiritual yeah. ministry, whether it's from a pipe carrier or an ordained bishop. Yeah, you're doing yeah. wonderful work in the in the community yeah. in Manitoba. I think from a spiritual aspect of it, I think you know, like you said, a lot of our people need help, you know, spiritually. So uh, I think you're know, doing wonderful work. My grandfather was a lay reader in a church for a number of years, and uh, and I followed the Anglican uh, religion, like I because I had a lot of respect for him, and and, and I want to be able to uh, to kind of follow what he believed in. You were also the chief of your community, TC and Tadaskia Cree Nation, for a number of years. What did you learn from that period in your life that helped you do what you are doing today? Yeah, when I look at uh, community leadership, you know, I always think about our ancestors. Uh, you know, our elders have told us a story of uh, where we come from, eh? where we come from. And that's what I try to share. So. Uh, you know, our people know, and also, especially our youth, know where they come from. We have a big, big territory, probably the biggest in northern Manitoba. And it tells us that we have a lot of uh, resources that are being extracted in our area, especially uh, resources that uh, water produces, and that's electricity. And most of it... Uh, it's estimated that the majority of electricity extracted for uh, purposes of heating and, and lights, uh, electricity to, to not only Manitoba, but also internationally, south of the border. That's where I come from. I, our ancestors moved from York Factory to, to the area before treaty, uh, even before treaty uh, uh, in the 1800s. We had leaders in our area. and. That's where our people and our experience come from. That's what I always look at. Even before treaty, our grandfather, 1908, signed a treaty not in, uh, adhesion to treaty number five. Me, I became elected as a counselor first. In the 80s, uh, even 70s, uh, when people became like teachers or, you know, or somebody that, that went to school, they always asked to help out as a community leader. And that's how I became a counselor. I was, I was working at a school at the time. And they asked me, can you run for counsel? I said, okay. I left the school, you know, very, very good paying job uh, with all its benefits of, uh, you know, paying it into a uh, group pension and group plans, you know, uh, paying EI. And then why would somebody leave that kind of a job and become a counselor making $300 a month. Honorarium. This is how many of our leaders are today, even in the past. They sacrifice, eh? You sacrifice. And I had a young family living on $300 a month. Good question. 
<laughs> you know, a lot of our people are like a lot of a lot of our leaders. You know, I really appreciate them. I really appreciate what they do. And as a chief, uh, I think I was making thirty thousand dollars honorarium a year. Not a lot for what you do. Yeah, I, I walk away from a salary, of, you know, a salary probably a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. To become a chief for thirty thousand dollars. And sometimes one of the things that really concern me is that some people call our leaders uh, puppets, puppets with the government. Many leaders, they don't think like that. We are leaders for our community. We've always been, we had our own governance way. We've always been that. And we don't work for the government. We work, we try to advance what our people want. And even today, I, I really admire leaders that are that really give their own life. And a lot of our leaders burn out because, you know, because, uh, you know, there's just not enough support for them. Right. It's stressful. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Language revitalization is an important issue now across our country. What is your diocese doing to help with this issue? You know, I have to answer this question from my personal way, and I hope stories like mine would help and educate the church, like the diocese. Our diocese is a, is a self-determining we, we pulled away from uh, a place, uh, a diocese called Kiwetan, which was very colonial. So today I'm under the, not a diocese, but indigenous spiritual ministry of Misamaquish. Misamaquish is a big beaver house, uh, the indigenous spiritual ministry of big beaver house. But anyway, uh, that is the self-determining our indigenous church is trying to go towards, but in order to talk about language, I have to tell you my story. Like I told you when I started, I left a family from a very oral tradition, and I entered residential school. I had to learn how to read and write in another language, which is uh, English. I even learned some French when I was grade four. They put me in a place I had to learn some French. So I think I can count to 10 in French. I could say hello in French, and you know, that's what I did. Two languages, but the main one was really impacted my way. And I was from residential school. When I walked out of there 16 years old, I could not speak my language. Where did you go when you, you went home from there? I went home, but then I went to Tataskia. I could not speak my language. You know, at home uh, with my brothers and we would sit around and listen to elders. And then we started talking, eh? And we talk in English. And the elders would say, what is this strange language I'm hearing, eh? And they say, who are these people that are talking this language? And they were listening to us in English, eh? And, <laughs> well, they made some comments, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, they, they started hearing us speaking a different language, you know? And, uh, and they I don't know if they understood us, but that's how it was at home. Yeah. Coming out of residential school, eh? You must have understood Cree, though, still, when you were, uh, you couldn't speak it, but did you understand it? Well, you could hear, uh, you could understand words here and there, like, Kopike. Yeah. Go get water. <laughs> yeah, you're going to understand it, but uh, to understand uh, elders speaking, you have to really listen what they're talking about. Right. You know? 
and sometimes you don't understand what they're saying. So there was, uh, you know, that our language of that because of residential school. Right. And it was the time, especially when I got married and I started becoming, uh, you know, working, uh, raising a family. You know, I, I became a chief when I was about 30 years old or something, uh, very young. Eh? But even before that, going to band meetings, you know, try to communicate and understand what's going on and try to explain, you know, in a broken Cree, eh? sometimes it was a very difficult time, very difficult, especially if you can't read or you can't speak your language. Eh? So then I really... I really got serious about it. In order for me to survive and what I'm doing, what I want to do, whether it's a counselor or, or a chief, I really had to learn my language. And that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks is motivation. You have to be motivated to learn your language. Our language is, it's in here. Ne, neo. It's in here. You know? and, and in oral tradition, you speak your creator from here. And that's it's got to come out. It's the speech, the language, the speech. It comes from here. Because it's the gift. It's there. You'll never lose it. It's there. But you have to bring it out. A key and uh, you know you have to bring it out, but you have to be motivated to do that. So what I did was I started hanging around the elders. I really listened to my mom and dad I, when they talk. I really listened, not to rebut, but I really listened. I really opened my ears and I try to understand what they're saying. Listening is very important. I listen. I listen. Then I even went to a church. Eh? There was people in our community. They started teaching us how to read the language. What is the key? What are the keys? How do those keys sound? And this is what I learned. I, I started studying the, the written language. I wanted to recognize how the sounds are. So I started going to the church, and I sang with, I sang with the elders. You know, born you you go to a church, very slow singing, eh? Very good practice. That's what right. I did. Yeah. Uh, we had two hymnals, and that's what I, I just followed them. And eventually, you start singing, you start understanding what what these hymns are about. And then eventually, I started reading the Mason Bible, the Scripture. You know, the Mason Bible was uh, was put together by uh, a Cree woman from Norway House. But Mason was her husband who, who wrote it down for her. It was translated. It was, it's, it's the language of our people. And even the syllabics, the, you know, the syllabics are, are characters you see around us, like the, the letter L, Lely, Lula, you know, like a toboggan, or you'll see flowers, you'll see Miguaf, the teepee, you'll see that in the symbol. Those symbols came from our people. That's how they were created, you know. But it was always the non-Indigenous people always took the credit of what our people helped put together. Right. 
I didn't realize oh. that uh, those uh, syllabic symbols came yeah, from yeah. Uh, our people. That's a very yeah, that's our people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, I was in Calhoun uh, in two thousand three. Oh, really? Yeah, and I seen that old cathedral that burned down. Yeah. Well, I seen that. You know where the, where you see the the reflections or the sermon, the pulpit they call it. It was a toboggan. Yeah, yeah. It was shaped like a toboggan. That's right. Uh, you know, and that's how that's how they brought the missionaries to our people on a toboggan. Eh? Yeah. And that's in the syllabics, those two symbols. They, yeah, they anyway they use syllabics as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that's how, you know, I was teaching, and I teach this in, uh, in when I do my uh, wellness camp on language. We do throat singing, eh? Wow. If you, if you do that, you, you know that you're starting to throat sing, to sound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I get people that we, we do throat singing and uh, make sure you, you you know how they sound. And, and that's how the, the the people from the North do, they do that to it. And I, I love them when I when I look at them do throat singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 But anyway, that's a... Uh, as a leader, I think uh, language is very important. There's something that I that concerns me is we're not using our language. And the school system is doing an awesome job inside the school. It's a big program in the school. I know in, uh, in our schools in, in, in the North, uh, we work with uh, Manitoba First Nations uh, uh, Resource, MF NERC, they call it. And they're trying to uh, uh, do uh, things in common, like instead of teaching the English uh, Roman orthography, teach the, the syllabics so children, they recognize it. But then what's happening is that's where it stops. It's not carried forward into the home. Right. Once the children get in the home, then they start playing their games. Everything's in English or a different language. TV, everything is in the English language. So when they when they come out of the school, when they get into the home, it's forgotten. And that's what I want to stress that we have to work with caregivers, with parents, guardians. We have to work with leadership. Make sure if you have a community meeting. If it's only in English, community meeting, make sure you translate so people hear the language. A lot of our elders uh, are gone. Gordon, you know, the TRC, I went there, and they said, by 2050, you and I are going on our spiritual, you know, we're, we're leaving Mother Earth, or we're continuing, or someplace else. If you know the language, if I know the language, that elders today, their stories are gone if they're not preserved, eh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're on the verge of extinction if we don't do anything with our languages. Yeah. We need to do something. And one of the biggest is motivation. How do we mobilize our people? That's where we need to motivate us. And also the other thing, our languages, the majority of the words or whatever you want to call them, 
He swear these things that come out of our body, the majority is from the land. And if our people are not going to the land, they're not hearing the language. They're not hearing our language. That's what the people that have studied language are saying, especially indigenous language. You have to go to the land to learn your language. So it has to be uh, it has to be an extension of the classroom in some yeah. some way. It has to be either spoken more at home as a continuation of the classroom, or you know uh, some other vehicle like maybe uh, culture camps and like what you're doing right now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really a, it's a big challenge for indigenous people across canada it's uh it's, it's yeah. i think we're, it's becoming an awakening call for a lot of us to you know uh work on revitalizing our languages so uh, it's good to hear about people like yourself working on these projects working on revitalizing our languages our indigenous languages and uh us at the legacy hope foundation we're also working on helping people, groups, individuals improve their, their skills in delivering indigenous languages uh, to their people. The last part of my question is, the last part of this podcast is my last question is about reconciliation. You know, we hear about this uh, being talked about. Reconciliation uh, is the buzzword these days in Canada and trying to uh, create a better better understanding about uh, indigenous and non-indigenous people so, so that we can live in a better country with more empathy and more understanding of each other and to make our country a better country to live in uh, moving forward. How do you feel about reconciliation? Can you say a few words about how you, how you feel about uh, reconciliation? You know, uh, I'm also uh, an educator. That's my background. I'm a licensed uh, teacher from Manitoba. I have a certificate. I have a degree in that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was teaching in 2015, I think, teaching high school. And the principal uh, of the day said, uh, can you and Elizabeth uh, take some youth? Uh, they're going to this event in Winnipeg, TRC event, Truth, Reconciliation uh, Commission. And uh, they were uh, gathering a gathering, I believe it was at the convention center there in Winnipeg, downtown Winnipeg. So we had about four young people, high school, high school students, and we were taking them. And as we entered that gathering, I seen, I seen a lot of young people. It was full of young people. And it was my understanding, it was young people from different, different schools not only indigenous people, but also non-indigenous people. And they were, they were students from across Manitoba. And uh, what the event was, they had presentations from uh, Olympic athletes. Uh, they had presentations, even uh, the vice uh, regional uh, chair from Facebook. <laughs> you know, uh, and they were telling the, the young people, you know, they had these stories they were handing out to the University of Manitoba, stories of residential school survivors. And UFM is the keeper. They, they were the keeper of these stories. And I went to their office at the TRC. I went to that office in, at UFM. But anyway, at this gathering, like I told you, by 2050, 50, that's only like 
less than 30 years from now, eh? Myself, if I'm still alive, I'll be 90, 97 years old. But they said, most of us are going to be gone. Right. But they expressed to the young people, young people, you have to keep these stories alive. And you're the ones that are responsible to talk about reconciliation. So, in other words, what I see there, the, the seeds were planted. This healing journey that we're on today is one of the biggest uh, mandates that, as a bishop in my area, Elder said, decolonization, language. You have to keep working on this as a leader. And reconciliation, young people, People today, we deal with racism, and that we deal with that as Indigenous people. But there are some good people in our country, even in the leadership, whether in government. Just recently, a premier of Manitoba resigned because the leader there don't know how to deal with reconciliation. But now the new leaders come up, they want to work with Indigenous people. And God has taught us, and it's, it's, in, it's in Scripture, it's in the good news, reconciliation, of how God wants to bring himself and its people together to work together. And it's like that with people. We have to come together, work together, for reconciliation to happen. Very well said. It's a big project for young people today. Yeah. So young people... If you know a survivor in the area, you'll talk to that survivor, residential school. Business, organization, churches, governments. If you know a survivor today, whether it's residential school, day school, uh, missing women, 60 school, you'll talk to them. Because what they share, it comes from the heart and it comes from true experience and it's and reconciliation, that's how it's going to happen. So that's my thoughts on it, Gordon, reconciliation. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking to Reverend Larry Isaiah Beardy from the Tatlaskia Cree Nation. On behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to do this with us today, Reverend. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you. Thank you. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.